This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. For many people, housing is their biggest expense. Be it rent or a mortgage payment, housing costs tend to be what most of us spend the largest portion of our incomes on. And there are landlords and property developers who have earned large profits based on the housing market. For people with disabilities, finding suitable housing also often requires finding accessible housing, which means housing that is barrier-free and affordable. Housing issues bring together the interests of landlords, tenants, property developers, and political leaders. Precisely because of the fundamental importance attached to housing, there are many competing ideas about how to address the need for appropriate housing. Today, we discuss disability and housing. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. If you listen to the show on a frequent basis, you might realize that we do a number of episodes on housing. It's a topic that I care quite a bit about. And so over the years, we've covered this issue from a number of different angles. And over the years, I've often wanted to reach out to the Accessible Housing Network, which is what we're doing today. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome to the program Kate Chung, who is the co-chair for the Accessible Housing Network and the chair for the Accessibility Committee for the Older Women's Network. Kate joins us today from Toronto. Hello and welcome to the program. It's really good that you could take about half an hour from your day and talk to us about this important topic. Thank you for having me. So, Kate, I've given you my crib notes version of what I think accessible housing is, but if you were asked to define it, how would you define accessible housing? Actually, we're looking at universal design, which means making the housing um, usable by just about anybody. There will, there will always be a few people who need you know, special design elements in their housing, but if you use universal design, then basically it's simple and straightforward enough that anyone, regardless of their age or disability, could live there. Mm. That's a reasonably, that's a really good way of looking at, at it, because I think for a lot of us, when we think about accessible housing, we're thinking about care homes or other settings where people with disabilities live together in a, in a group setting uh, where we necessarily provide care. But what you're saying is that the definition is broader than that, and that anyone, uh, regardless of age or ability, would be able to move into any sort of housing. How many examples of such housing exist in the city of Toronto where you live? I don't even know. Not a lot, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, <laughs> because there's no law in Canada requiring that any housing be accessible. In Ontario, we have the AODA, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, but it doesn't even mention housing at all. It focuses on outdoor space around buildings and public buildings. And the building code only requires that 15% of new apartments have to be visitable. That means you can come in and visit, but you couldn't live there because mm -hmm. it's not accessible enough. You can get into 
the washroom, one washroom. You can get into the living room. You can get into a bedroom. It doesn't even say that you have to be able to turn your wheelchair around in the bedroom. So um, there, there's just nothing requiring it. Therefore, developers are not building it, even though mm-hmm. 22% of Canadians have a disability as of 2017. And, of course, that's increasing all the time, as those of us who are getting older continue to do so. Why is it that developers have shied away from building um, accessible housing or housing that implements some of these universal design principles? As you noted, it's not required by law, but at the same time, that's 22% of the Canadian population with a disability. That's one in five Canadians who would need accessible housing, even if they don't do it for altruistic reasons. Surely there's a market argument for why developers might want to get into building accessible housing. Exactly so, and that's the question we're asking, because the developers basically tell us we will build to what the building code requires, and that's it. Mm. I think it's a lack of an ability to think outside the box, and I think it's very similar to when environmental concerns were coming to the fore in housing, and builders were saying, oh, we can't make those environmental um, features in our buildings because nobody wants to pay for them. And then they found out that actually people were demanding them, and so mm-hmm. now you'll see green roofs and all kinds of environmental features in buildings. So I think we've got the same thing going on now. Now, what happened before, I asked an environmental engineer one time why he thought builders were not making buildings environmentally accessible. And, and uh, his response was the old boys network, that mm-hmm. basically they wanted to keep on doing what they'd always been doing. That was easy. They were able to sell the units. It didn't matter to them what they were like. They just wanted to get, build them and get them off their hands. And they wanted to use the same suppliers, um, the same cookie-cutter designs from their computers. Um, so I think we're finding the same thing with regard to accessibility. So we, we really need to let people know that we want an accessible unit. And this goes for all of us, not just somebody who's using a wheelchair or somebody who's blind or has some other disability. We, we need all of us because we're all, you know, just one accident or illness or old age away from having a disability. So mm-hmm. I know I always, when I receive a, some message from a builder saying, oh, we're building this condo, you know, come and see, I reply and say, are all the units accessible? I'm not going to live in a building that doesn't have every unit fully accessible. At that mm-hmm. point, of course, they write me off. But that's, we have to get through to them. And, mm-hmm. and, and I don't understand when this, is, when this is such a huge part of the market. In fact, Angus Reid did a poll across Canada and found that way over half Canadians want to have their housing accessible. And this is all kinds of housing, not just apartments. Mm-hmm. Because they either knew they, either they need it now or they know that in the future they'll most likely need it. Or they have a friend or a relative they'd like to be able to come over and visit, but they can't because they know that person can't get into their their apartment or house. Uh, you mentioned the building code, which is provincial. You've uh, talked about developers and a lot of the negotiations uh, that happen happen between developers and the city. So clearly those two levels of government have a horse in the race and they are levels of government that we could potentially reach out to to ask for accessible housing. But what about the federal government? I mean, they've just uh, announced the federal accessibility legislation, the, Can- the Accessible Canada Act. Now it's a couple of years old, but it was a... It, it was seen to be a really big step forward in the right direction for Canadians with disabilities. Plus, the federal government has a mandate to try and allow Canadians to age in place or to age in their own homes. So 
does the federal government have a role to play, in your opinion, to try and advance accessible housing for Canadians with disabilities or indeed for anyone? Absolutely, the federal government has a role. It's really kind of ironic. I think they're just starting to to start to look at that, and the and the um, National Housing Strategy and the Accessibility Act are part of that, but they haven't really taken effect yet. In about three years ago, we had a petition presented in the House of Commons asking that the National Building Code require that all housing be accessible, all new housing, and we're just looking at new apartments. And the response we got from three different government departments was, oh, it's not the federal government's role. They don't have anything to do with housing. That It's the province and the municipality. They just totally wrote us off. And now we see some changes starting. So, for example, the, um, oh, what do they call the, the, the CCBFC, which is uh, fire code people. Sorry, I've got their, I keep getting their, their name mixed up, but that's the initials. Mm-hmm. They had a meeting yesterday, actually, because, because the, that particular committee has an influence on, on um, the National Research Council, which has an influence on the National Building Code. They're all interrelated mm-hmm. somehow, and, and, and I'm only just learning about all the intricacies of this. Um, but the meeting yesterday, I attended and I spoke about the need for accessible housing, and they have a, a paper they just had written over many years, and yesterday they approved that it's now going for translation and then it'll be published on their website, calling for changes in accessibility and and for harmonizing building codes across the country. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't it doesn't specify what needs to change. It's a step, but you see, it's still back where you know, Canadians do studies and royal commissions and all this kind of thing, but we don't actually do anything. We do a lot of talking and put report on the shelf. So mm-hmm. I was saying, no, like, it's urgent. You've got to act. This is affecting people of all ages, including kids. Would you please care about the kids? And and um, <clears throat> we, we, we need action now. Where are people to live? I actually said to them, where are these people supposed to live? Mm-hmm. In so fact, you could argue you needed to do something yesterday about this. Uh, let oh, me yeah. just pick up on that for uh, for a second here, because um, there are so many facets when you think about housing. Where do you think the government needs to intervene the most? So obviously, there's housing that is built for the private market. That's the bulk of, say, rental housing. But uh, there's also housing on reserves, which is in really bad shape. Uh, at least in Toronto, there's social housing. And we know there's a massive wait list factor in the the disability issue and the need for maybe a, a wheelchair accessible unit and i don't even want to think about the wait list to get into one of those so with so much that needs doing where can the federal government or any level of government intervene to have the biggest impact the where they could if if they would just move the problem is this this inertia that they don't get moving so this report yesterday was an example of the slow moving, just starting to think about this, even though we've had you know people with debil- disabilities forever, but they're not in the back bedroom on the farm. They're living and they want to be independent. They want to have their own own home. They don't want to be stuck being looked after by family who are then going to die. And then what happens to them? You know, how many parents are looking after a child with a disability, an adult child? So the federal government needs to take real action. They need to change the National Building Code now. They need to take action on the National Housing Strategy with regard to accessibility. They need to take action with regard to the Accessible Canadians Act, which which I don't know enough about yet. Um, 
And because all the provinces say, well, if we need to harmonize, and the federal government therefore needs to take the lead. So the National Building Code needs to say all new apartments, condos and rental, need to be fully accessible. And, and they need to just put that in the National Building Code. And then all the provinces would harmonize with that. But they're all waiting. They're all passing the buck back and forth. And that's what causes this huge roadblock. So even, like you mentioned, the municipalities. You know, we've talked to the city of Toronto. And, and uh, there's, there's a real lack of, of knowledge about cost, for example. So we're being told, well, it will cost too much. You'd have to make the units bigger. And we're saying, no, there's a CMHC study that shows that for an apartment, a new apartment, you can make the apartment accessible or not in the same size unit, and therefore the cost would be the same. So there really is no excuse, but there's these old, I'd say, uh, old builder's tales that, that say, oh, it's too expensive. And we've, we've got to get past that thinking because the municipalities could say, well, we're providing land to developers, we're making concessions with regard to development fees and taxes and that kind of thing. Therefore, we require that all the units you build be accessible. That's all they have to do. And the developers would do it. If everybody had to do it, they'd do it. But the municipality's not doing that. They're not taking the power they have. Today, we're talking all things accessible housing with Kate Chang of the Accessible Housing Network. Kate, you are a powerhouse when it comes to all, you know, talking about housing. Tell us a little bit about the Accessible Housing Network. What is it and uh, how did you get it started? Okay, well, I, as chair of the housing committee of the Older Women's Network, we were, we were actually working on the issue of accessibility for four or five years but realized we really needed to work with other organizations because alone we weren't being listened to. So we started the network, and there's about a dozen organizations that are members now. Um, and uh, so working together, we're able to you know, bring, bring together more expertise and, and influence, we hope. So we've been going for about a year, and ironically, we just started, and then COVID happened. So we've been meeting by Zoom, and, and it's, it's funny because Zoom actually is wonderful. Zoom allows people with severe disabilities to participate, people who wouldn't be able to get you know, to downtown Toronto for a meeting, for example. So we have people you know, far flung in, in Ottawa and, and uh, in Scarborough and out of the west end of Toronto, as well as in the center of the city participating in, in, the, in the steering committee. And um, so, so that's working really well. So working working together with the, the same aim for our members or clients. We're, we're trying to put some pressure on government at all levels to change the laws and change the way they operate, as I've mentioned before. The other thing we've done is we've met with the chief commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, mm-hmm. and we, we did that because we found out that in 2002, the Human Rights Commission had issued a statement to the Ministry of Housing saying that the building code is in contravention of the Human Rights Code. And in over 18 years, neither conservative or liberal government had done anything about this at all. So we went to, to meet with her, and in uh, National Housing Day, November 22nd of 2020, she issued a new statement saying the same thing, that the building code is in contravention of the Human Rights Code and, and the, the Charter of Rights and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And the building code needs to change and require that all new housing be accessible. 
So, of course, the government hasn't done anything, the Ontario government. But um, people are able, if, if an individual listening has a difficulty in finding a place, if a landlord refuses to rent to them because of a disability, which I understand has happened, to, especially mm-hmm. to people who are blind, the landlord will say, well, we think you'll burn the place down. If that happens, <laughs> or if a landlord refuses to um, put automatic doors in the entrance to your building, that kind of thing, which is also happening, you can mm-hmm. go to the Human Rights Commission, Ontario Human Rights Commission, and make a complaint. And they have a tribunal, and they also have um, legal helpers who will help you with, with your complaint. So it, but you have to go within a year of your problem. So I really mm-hmm. encourage people to get in touch with the Ontario Human Rights Commission immediately if they have that kind of a problem with regard to accessibility in housing. Contact all their politicians. So contact your local councillor, contact your provincial MPP, and your federal MP, and say, I want accessible housing now. I want all new housing to have to be accessible. We're stressing new because it doesn't cost any more for an apartment, as Mm -hmm. I said before, to be accessible. And for a new house, it's not that much more. But to do renovations is very expensive. And that's why people think it's too expensive to make housing accessible. But for new housing, it's not too expensive. So they need to stress the new part when they're talking to the politicians. And just say, I want action now because, and then say why. We, will ha- we are working on getting a website up. We're struggling as we're all volunteers. When it's up, we will have a, a sample letter there. But it's better to just write, even if you only write two sentences send a quick email to your politician, and then follow up when they reply, say, no, don't, don't put me off. <laughs> I really want an answer. I want you to take action and not just talk. We have, to, we have to keep doing that. You have to keep after them. So reply to the reply to the reply until they realize you really mean business. The other thing that came out of what you were saying, uh, when we were talking about going to the Human Rights Commission and making that complaint, I wanted to chip in and say that it's really important to gather evidence because with discrimination, it's really hard to pinpoint that there's discrimination. They might say that we won't rent to you, um, you know, because you're blind and we're worried that you might burn the apartment down. They might say that to you verbally but how would you ever prove that so do you feel that part of the issue here as well Kate is that tenants and I'm using tenants because I think a lot of people with disabilities are renter households not all but a lot do you think that a lack of education about tenant rights is a factor here as well which is why so much discrimination goes unchecked yeah we probably need to do some workshops or you could certainly do something on your show would be really helpful on how to prepare for something like this and, and prepare in advance. So, for example, if you're going to go to look at an apartment, um, take somebody with you so you've got a witness. If you know how to record things on your phone, set it recording. I don't know how to do that. I need to have a, a tutorial in that. Um, uh, do, do as much as possible in writing so they have to reply to you in writing. And, and then you, you, you build your case and whatever proof you can get that way um, then you can take that with you when you make your complaint. The other piece that came out of what you were just saying that is so interesting 
is uh, we've spoken a lot about the need for housing that is uh, uh, that subscribes to these ideas around universal design. We had a long chat about needing to update building codes to mandate accessible housing. But what about actually paying for that housing? So according to the CMHC, your housing is considered affordable if you spend um, about 30% of your after-tax income on housing. And let's face facts, most of us spend way more than that on our housing. And that might just be uh, life. But for a lot of people with disabilities, especially those on fixed incomes, um, paying the rent might mean the difference between a Metropass or getting groceries. So, you know, you cut things back just to be able to keep paying your rent. How do you address the uh, the financial side of accessible housing. So how do we deal with the question of rents when landlords will turn around and say, but we have a right to make a profit on our properties? Yeah, and that applies to all housing, whether accessible or not. Mm. And, and um, mm. there again is another whole topic uh, because I, I think there is a huge need for more social housing. In, in I think it's in Vienna, most of the housing is owned by the government and, and people rent. Um, I think that... The, here, for some reason, um, there, there is discrimination against the very idea of social housing, and and um, I think we have to get past that. It's more important for you know government to own the housing and run it properly. I mean, that's another whole issue. But the other thing is, uh, I'd love to have you actually do a program on is is community land trusts. I think that it's really important. So, for example, the city is providing to developers at a good price, unfortunately, our some of our so-called surplus land. I don't think the city should be selling that land to developers. I think it should remain in city ownership so that the, the builders just lease the land to build the apartments on. And that way you take the cost of land right out of the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, Parkdale Community Land Trust is doing some really, what do they call it, Parkdale Neighborhood Land Trust, I think it's called. They mm-hmm. they do really good work. I highly recommend you get them in to talk. Um, so if you take the cost of land out of the cost of housing and there's only a, a, a minimal lease cost, then all you have is the cost of construction. And if you do basic construction, it doesn't have to be fancy, but it has to be adequate, then housing should be much more affordable. And, and the builders could still make a reasonable profit they don't have to get rich on this, just make it mm-hmm. adequate living. So there's, there's a whole lot of greed involved in the housing market mm-hmm. now, and it's just a shame. We have to take the profit out. Um, there are ways that people in other places have set up community land trusts, and they have a, affordable housing on that land, and mm-hmm. they have built into all the agreements that the, when, the, when the housing is sold or rented to someone else, it cannot go up in price. It's just a wonderful way of, of keeping housing affordable. And the co-ops are an example of that. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the provincial and federal co-op programs were started, which is another whole issue, uh, were stopped. Um, but the co-ops when they were, when they, that we have tend to have lower rent than any other apartments. And that's because they're nonprofit. And so their, their rents are based on the cost of building at the time the place was built, plus the cost of maintenance and putting mm-hmm. money into their reserve fund. So they're able to keep their costs down. No money is being bled off as profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the co-op model is very interesting, but just in the few minutes that we have left, uh, in the past, we've had Leilani Farah on the program. She was the former 
UN Special Rapporteur on Housing. Uh, she's talked a lot about the financialization of housing and this idea that it has become about the underlying profit rather than giving people a place to live. But she's also been really big in pushing this idea of housing as a human right. Is that sort of where you're coming from as well? And is that the way that policymakers need to start thinking about housing when they make decisions about land and developers and raising rents or freezing rents? What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. In fact, we've met with Lulani. We're totally right on this, on this, the same wavelengths with regard to this. It, it's a human right. Everyone has a right to adequate housing according to their needs, including accessibility. And, and we have to stop seeing it as a, a profit center and seeing it as um, the human right. You have a place to live, not a place to make a buck. That's a great way to leave it there. Uh, Kate, thank you very much. I know it's been half an hour, but honestly, it's just flown by. It feels like it's been uh, not nearly as long. So thanks very much for being on the program today. Thank you so much. Take care. Kate Chang is the uh, co-chair for the Accessible Housing Network. As you heard, they'll have a website up and running, but you can find them on Facebook. Just look for the Older Women's Network and follow the links from there. If you missed any of my conversation with Kate, because there were a number of good ideas in there that you might want to go over, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Kate Chang for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.